Two notes before we begin, listeners. From time to time, we had a feedback issue on this recording. We managed to eliminate most of it, but if you hear a squeak or a bit of distortion, that's us, not your equipment. Second, we are about to discuss presidential assassination and gun violence. If those are triggers for you or anyone in the listening vicinity, you might want to skip this episode. I was home early from school that day, just a second grader. My mother and I wound up watching the first ever live breaking news coverage. The word that the president was gone, 11-22-63. That was reporter Frank Crocker of WLOS News in Asheville, North Carolina. Before September 11, 2001, the cultural moment that everyone my age and older had in common, the sharing of confidence that begins with the phrase, where were you when? was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. On November 22, 1963, I was five. My mother had picked me up at nursery school and taken me into town to the Reading Terminal Market in South Philadelphia, which is where we were when, thousands of miles away, in Dealey Plaza, a central thoroughfare in Dallas, Texas, Today, the news would have been tweeted instantly, but then it took 10 minutes or so for it to be reported out, as beat reporters pushed each other out of the way at pay telephones. Most famously, CBS News's Walter Cronkite interrupted the popular soap opera, As the World Turns, to break the story. My mother and everyone else in line at one of the Italian stalls that sold meat, fish, and fresh vegetables heard the news on a radio playing behind the counter. I remember only a churn of women's legs around me, Remember, I was five, and was as tall as the average hemline, and my mother seizing my hand and running to the door. We have to go home, she said. The president has been shot. We got into her big yellow mercury and started to drive home to the suburbs with the radio on. I wasn't really listening, but what I remember was this. My mother pulled to the side of the road and began to cry. I looked through the windshield. Yes, children sat in the front seat then. And one after another, cars were pulling off the road. Afternoon television audiences still watching as the world turns saw Walter Cronkite return to their screen, and this is what he said. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. You can just barely hear it in his voice. Like much of the nation, Cronkite was crying too. At 2.38 p.m., Air Force One took off with First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy on board and JFK's body in the hold on its way to an autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital. In midair, Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson took the oath of office as the 36th President of the United States. A few hours later, the assassin, a little-known figure named Lee Harvey Oswald, was captured in a Dallas movie theater after killing again, this time Patrolman J.D. Tippett. Oswald was a former Marine, a defector to Russia, and briefly a street corner activist with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Needless to say, initial speculation was that he was a foreign agent striking a blow against the leader of the free world. 
That turned out to be wrong. Furthermore, in a brief appearance before a swarm of reporters outside the Dallas Police Department headquarters, Oswald insisted that he didn't do it. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, the first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall uh, asked me that question. Of course, since he was a child, Oswald had never accepted responsibility for any of his misdeeds. We'll get to that. But to say the least, his public disavowal of the crime that day complicated things. Forever. Had there been a trial, and Oswald proven to be the lone gunman, perhaps what became the foundational conspiracy theory in modern political history would never have been born. But on November 24th, the day before President Kennedy's funeral, that conspiracy theory gathered strength. Like millions of other Americans, I watched, wide-eyed, as a handcuffed Oswald was himself murdered in the basement of the Dallas Police Department by a nightclub owner, Jack Ruby. These events were a turning point in American life. Although presidents had been assassinated before, I was born into an America where gun violence didn't suddenly erupt in public places. By the end of the decade, that was no longer true. A few months before Kennedy was shot, civil rights organizer Medgar Evers had been gunned down in his own driveway by Mississippi Klansman Byron de la Beckwith. On April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King was killed by James Earl Ray. And on June 6, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy, JFK's brother, was killed by a lone gunman after winning the California presidential primary. But it was John F. Kennedy, the first of what became an American political dynasty, whose death became shrouded in speculation and conspiracy mongering. In the 60 years that have since passed, the pieces of this puzzle, the Soviet Union, the improbability of the shots Oswald took from his post in the Texas Book Depository, communist Cuba, and Jack Ruby's mob ties, have been moved across the board by experts, journalists, and hobbyists, many seeking to displace Oswald from the center of the story. But as we know from a new book by journalist Deanne Stillman, American Confidential, uncovering the bizarre story of Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother, there was someone else competing for the spotlight all along. That was Lee's mother, Marguerite Oswald. Here she is in December 1963, talking to a local Dallas reporter. When I was sitting down watching... Uh, to television, I heard my son as leaving from one uh, room from the other with the police officers say, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. So I heard him say, I didn't do it. And I was asked the question when I was allowed to see him in jail afterward, did I ask my son if he did it? Well, I have definite feelings about that. I would not insult my son and ask him if he did it. Because I heard him in his own voice say many a time on the television, I did not do it, I did not do it. So I am assuming that he is innocent until proven guilty. That is our American way of life. You said something uh, to the effect the FBI should have kept a watch on your son while the president was visiting Dallas. Were you imputing any guilt on his part by that statement? No. Uh, I say... The day before, I think, I, I watched on television and on read in the paper where, of course, uh, all of the agents were in Dallas protecting, uh, uh, preparing the visit of President Kennedy's security. And so I will say 
since my son had defected to Russia, he should have been under surveillance. And had he been under surveillance for the president's uh, uh, journey to Dallas, then President Kennedy would be alive today, and so would my son. And that is, in, uh, that is security protection. He is a known, I hate to use the word, but I will use it, character. And all known characters were being screened and would be under surveillance while President Kennedy was making his uh, tour of Dallas. So then why wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald a known defector, not under surveillance? You heard what Marguerite said. She knows that Hurley didn't do it because he said he didn't do it. And if the federal government had been doing its job properly that day, they would know that too, because Lee would have been under surveillance when Kennedy was in Dallas. But Marguerite had always excused Lee's violence. It was always someone else's fault. It's also no accident that Marguerite treated the assassination and her son's murder as an opportunity to promote herself. Both she and Lee had always craved the spotlight, the success and fame that they believed were rightly theirs, sometimes even competing with each other. And now that her son was infamous in his own right, Marguerite, who had always been poor, used Lee's crime to make bank and take her own place in history. She sold her son's belongings, offered exclusive interviews like the one we just listened to for pay, and by 1965 could be found in Dealey Plaza selling copies of Aftermath of an Execution, The Burial and Final Rites of Lee Harvey Oswald, as told by his mother. A first edition of this volume, with a tipped-in Christmas card from Marguerite, was sold at auction in Wilton, Connecticut, for $1,500 in 2020. Deanne Stillman doesn't want us to blame the Kennedy assassination on bad mothering, although there's plenty of that, but on how this strange dyad, Lee and Marguerite, drove their desire for fame and their story forward together to that fateful moment on November 22, 1963. And she raises important questions, not just about Oswald's iconic status as an assassin, but his historical position as a model for the shooters we know today who kill people often unknown to them, lone wolf gunmen enmeshed in fantasies about themselves, usually mentally ill, who buy guns and mount GoPro cameras on their chests as they seek one brief moment of fame and glory. We live in the world Lee Harvey and Marguerite Oswald made. So join Deanne and me for this episode of Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 40, Oswald's Mother. Stillman, welcome to the show. Hey, Claire Potter. Thanks so much for having me. Deanne, you've got a new book out just in time for the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Can you give our listeners an overview of the book? Well, I look at the assassination of JFK through the prism of this strange relationship between 
Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother, Marguerite. And by that, I mean that together they formed an inadvertent conspiracy of one. And I really counter all the zillions of conspiracy theories that are out there about the assassination. And I take a really close look at how uh, their family dynamic factored into what happened. And as I see it, they both were obsessed with fame and recognition and, and this need to matter. And that originated with Marguerite Oswald, Lee's mother. She herself came of age during the Depression and, and worked a series of menial jobs throughout her life in New Orleans and in Fort Worth and Dallas. They moved around a lot, but she, she always felt inconsequential and was in a lot of ways. She grew up amid the Huey Long atmosphere. You'll recognize his name. He was the, the populist and fascistic governor of Louisiana during the 1930s and later a senator. And he, he was kind of a smarter and um, even more dangerous precursor. Well, I don't, just as dangerous precursor to Trump as Trump himself is um, his signature line was every man a king every woman a queen and that came from the idea that the whole country was broke during the depression i mean there there really were a lot of down and out people then and he made people feel really good by saying yeah you you should be a king you deserve it and this was marguerite oswald's feeling about herself and her plight in life and she really passed this on to lee who constantly felt victimized and that the world owed him a living, and they both were always making excuses for whatever happened in their lives. And they re often resorted to this mantra that we all know, it's a free country and I can do what I want. They were both very invested in personal rights, and it, it was a fallback position for them every time either one of them got in trouble or was called out for any infraction. At the very end, when Lee himself was arrested for killing JFK, one of the first things he said was, I know my rights. So to me, that was just the natural progression of everything that he had grown up hearing. And it was a completely expected response given their personal history. So much has been written about him. Don DeLillo has written a novel. There are hundreds of histories. There are even more of the Kennedy assassination. There are also conspiracy theories that swirl around Oswald. How does looking at this story through Oswald's mother kind of cut through that and get us to a different place? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that's exactly one of the reasons I wanted to write about Lee and Marguerite. I've read many of the books and articles and essays on the subject. And you mentioned DeLillo's book, Libra, which is, you know, of course, iconic in the in this zone. And, and, and it should be. And Norman Mailer's book, Oswald's Tale, is too. And, you know, there are a few others that were foundational to mine. And I certainly couldn't have written my book without those. but there hasn't been anything new really in decades. Well, there's another one. I'll get to get to that in a second. But there hasn't been any like serious look at Oswald and his family in decades. And something I had found out during my years of research was that Oswald's grandfather was a streetcar conductor in New Orleans. And this was at the sort of at the very beginning of streetcars in in the Crescent City. 
It made me think immediately of a streetcar named Desire, and I love Tennessee Williams. And I started looking up the history of trolleys in New Orleans, and it turns out that Oswald's grandfather, John Clavery, whom Lee never met, but it turns out that he may well have been a conductor on the streetcar named Desire. There was really a Desire line. And I started thinking about that and how that resonated in the Oswalds' lives. Stanley Kowalski and Blanche were, uh, those two were entrapped in very meager circumstances. And Tennessee Williams, Williams's play is all about how they fared inside of that and their expectations and desires and what was fulfilled and all the things that were not. And there were a lot of things that were not for them. And Stanley takes it out on Stella. <laughs> well, on Blanche, too. Stanley brutalizes Stella, and it's the exact same thing that Lee did to his wife, Marina, the Russian woman he returned with following his defection to that country. And he was often hitting her. His mother, Marguerite, would sometimes visit them and discover that Marina was hiding a black eye. And at that time, you know, nobody ever said anything about this. But a lot of things I found out about Lee and Marina echoed what was in Streetcar. And I just thought it was very interesting that Oswald's grandfather was, in fact, most likely. I mean, I can't prove it, but given the trolley lines that were around then, there were only one or two of them. And he worked on one that went right, right past their apartment. That was the desire line. So given all of that, I just thought it was incredibly resonant. And then um, years later, during one of Lee and Marguerite's many moves, they were living in the Bronx, of all places, with Lee's older half-brother and his wife and their toddler. And Lee developed a fondness for riding the subways. And he would travel all over New York, you know, whenever he could. And he just loved the idea of being down there riding the rails and he he carried a map with him of all the lines and proudly showed it off to his brother and so on. I mean, as I see it, that may have been a way of connecting with his family legacy. I'm sure his mother spoke of her own father being a conductor on the streetcar named Desire. So, Dan, you weave Oswald into much larger themes in American culture. And one of those themes is a far more recent history, mass shooters, assassins, and so on. And one of the things you say at the beginning of the book is that it's really Oswald who establishes the American iconic figure in the post-World War II period of the celebrity shooter. Can you talk about that a little bit and and what our listeners will learn? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that, Claire, because that's another reason I, I wanted to write this. Celebrity shooter is a good good description of him. I think the famous picture that we've all seen, Oswald po- posing with his rifle, and that was on the cover of Life magazine a couple of months after he had killed JFK. That became like the picture of Lee Harvey Oswald that we all know. Even though it was a Polaroid, I see it as the first selfie of a man posing with his weapon, and it was taken by his wife. She thought it was weird at the time, but, you know, the whole scenario really 
never went much further than that until Oswald was arrested for killing JFK. And I think, I mean, I know various mass shooters have been influenced by Oswald. They cite him in their writings. This goes as far back as Artie Bremer. He was not a mass shooter, but he did try to kill uh, Alabama governor George Wallace in 1972, and he cites Oswald in his diaries. Mark David Chapman did so too, and he he's the guy who who tried to kill Ronald Reagan in order to impress Jodie Foster. More recently, there have been you know some school shooters who have talked about Oswald and had had that picture of Oswald with his rifle, you know, in their bedrooms, and obviously they've been studying that photo along with a, a lot of other you know information about assassins. So he has become a figure to emulate for certain disaffected, shall we say, young men of today. And even um, Robert Kennedy Sr., Senator Robert Kennedy Sr. said during his presidential campaign, after Martin Luther King had been assassinated, he said, you know, that fellow Oswald has really uncorked something in this country. And he was referring to the fact that Oswald had killed his brother, JFK, but then Martin Luther King had been just been killed. And then, of course, Bobby Kennedy was, was soon to be assassinated. But I feel that he didn't know how prescient he was with that line. He has, certainly has uncorked something in this country. So being a presidential assassin, of course, isn't a new thing in America. Lincoln was assassinated. Garfield was assassinated. McKinley was assassinated. Somebody tried to assassinate Teddy Roosevelt. Somebody tried to assassinate FDR. But the Oswald killing is unique because we've got it on film and it can be replayed over and over again. So would you say that Oswald is actually different from these earlier assassins? I think that's a really good question. And there's a multifaceted answer. He's different in that, in that as you say, it, it's all been filmed. And because in 1963, you know, because of the way the media was burgeoning at the time, he did become this international celebrity. Of course, the other assassins became quite notorious as well, but you could say they have influenced other killers and, and other killers have well, certainly Oswald was reading about some of them in the months prior to, you know, the assassination of JFK. And I feel that Stephen Sondheim has written about this in his play Assassins, that there were that the ghosts of all these killers are like constantly front and center whenever any of these incidents take place. And there are these voices that are kind of whispering across American culture and certain people who are deranged and want to see who are seeking recognition and notoriety are, you know, listen to these voices and take heed. So I think that's one of the things that separates Oswald out. All the earlier political assassins actually had a certain kind of motive, a partisan motive of one kind or another. John Wilkes Booth was a Confederate sympathizer. Leon Zogos was an anarchist. But it's not clear immediately why Oswald killed JFK. And so there's this immediate search for political motive. And what are the answers that people come up with? And were they right? Yeah, they were all wrong. 
Um, they come up with a number of answers, that he was a defector to, to, to Russia, that he was working for the KGB, that he was a CIA plant, that he was affiliated with the Miami Cubans, that he um, hated JFK, that he hated liberals, that he was reactionary, and he hated rednecks. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of motives that have been assigned to him, and they're all political. But I, I just don't think any of them fly because he was all over the map in terms of his political affiliations. He, don't forget, he when he was killed, he was only 21 years old. I mean, people sort of treat him as if he had a lot of experience and wis, wisdom, and he didn't. He was a rash, mentally ill young man who, who had been diagnosed as possibly schizophrenic. I, today, maybe he, he'd be called... Maybe a psychiatrist would say he had Asperger's syndrome or something, or you know ADHD or an, a combo platter, and he'd be under treatment. I don't know, but at the time, it, it was clear to a number of people after he kept getting in trouble at school for cutting class and you know various uh, bullying people, other you know hitting his mother, pulling a knife on his aunt, became clear to people that there was a problem. Although, again, at that time, those problems weren't really being fully addressed, and they aren't now. But people are more aware of this kind of behavior. As I was saying earlier, the only thing that can explain what happens is that he and his mother together formed this unintentional conspiracy of one, and they had this desperate need for acknowledgement. You know, in some ways, he reminded me a lot of Travis Bickle in the movie Taxi Driver directed by Martin Scorsese. And even Scorsese has come out recently and said that nowadays there are a lot of Travis Bickles. And that's one of the points in my book. If you compare the photo of um, Oswald posing with his rifle, it's very similar to Travis Bickle standing in front of the mirror with his gun. And to me, the the, um, subtext of Oswald posing with that rifle is, are you talking to me? Marguerite is a very troubled woman. It's not just that she needs acknowledgement. She's poor um, and she's poorly educated. She has difficulty making a living. She was married a couple of times and the marriages break up. But she also has two older sons who are kind of okay. They go into the military, they get married, they have real lives. And then she has this one son who is a completely bad seed. How does a mother produce such different children? Yeah, that's another good question. The older brothers themselves have attributed that to the fact that Oswald grew up without a father. You know, there's a lot that's been made of a lot of today's mass shooters is that they've grown up in single mother households. And this is not to disparage mothers. Plenty of successful people have grown up you know, with one parent and in particular one mother. And and, I mean, I was raised mostly by my mother and I can think of dozens of other people I know who were. But that being said, lack of a father in the house has is one of the factors that's creating all these violent young fellows. Oswald's older brothers had one of them knew his father, Oswald's father, died by the time Lee was born. Incidentally, both this particular older brother, Robert E. Lee Oswald Jr., was named 
like his father after the Confederate General Robert E. Lee, and Lee's own name comes from Robert E. Lee. And that was a tradition in the South, naming boys after Robert E. Lee. And it was something everyone was proud of, including Lee. He spoke of it. And I feel that in certain ways, Lee going after this king from American aristocracy in the Northeast was a rebel yell. Not that he was consciously thinking of it, but Marguerite's class resentment and the fact that she was constantly working one menial job after another and, you know, being steeped in kind of a Dixie point of view, I think that Oswald soaked a lot of that in. And they spent a lot of years in New Orleans, their birthplace, and there were Robert E. Lee statues everywhere. It was just a given. And if you were named after General Lee, that that was your legacy, meaning that you were in charge of everything, even if you were down and out and couldn't scrape three nickels together. That was a point of pride. And Marguerite was very immersed in that and, and, you know, proud of her heritage and had a thing for royalty. And it's the flip side of her feeling uh, victimized and beleaguered. Yeah, and that Marguerite makes excuses for Lee and his bad behavior emerges very, very early on. Um, Schools are concerned about it. His brothers are concerned about it. She has a second husband who's concerned about it, or actually a third husband. And she keeps sort of saying it's everybody else's fault. To what do you attribute her desire to say that Lee was okay, no matter what he did? Well, I think she probably felt it reflected on her and that it would make her look like a bad mother, which, you know, you could certainly make the case that she failed as a mother. I mean, again, back to her other sons who were older than Lee, they left as soon as they could. You know, when they turned 17, they both joined the military. And and again, that that was and still is a tradition in the South for a lot of people, but they wanted to get as far away from her as they could. So did Lee. But in Lee's case, um, as we've been talking about, with no father in the household, except for that third husband of Marguerite's, who was there, I forget for how, you know, a few months or maybe a year, um, he did fare better when Marguerite was married to Edward Ekdahl and the older brothers acknowledged it and Lee seemed to be happier then and they would do things like go on road trips and Ekdahl took the boys out for ice cream and they went on adventures together and it was the first time that Lee really had a father figure in the house and was doing better and he seemed to uh, begin a downward spiral after Marguerite and Ekdahl got divorced. Lee does join the military himself. Um, It doesn't work out very well. And maybe you can tell our listeners a little about that. And then he defects to Russia. He gets involved with all this communist propaganda in the United States. And he goes to Russia and sort of shows up and says, I'm here, take me. And they do. And it's kind of a big deal that this American soldier shows up in Russia. But then he also gets sick of that. Can you tell that story? I think he defected, again, back to all the conspiracies. I don't think it was because he made a secret deal with the KGB or was selling them, you know, secrets 
of American technology. I mean, he did work at bases where there was radar development going on and so on. Um, and he certainly did interact with a number of nefarious characters over the years. There's no doubt about that. People who might have wanted to know what he knew and was working on. But I think he just wanted to get as far away from Marguerite as he could. He had been reading about the workers' paradise of Russia. I mean, again, this was something that his mother had passed on to them. The, uh, and and the, Huey, the whole Huey Long thing of being of the working man being exploited in America, which he certainly was at the time and still is. So this idea that Lee and his mother were stranded, you know, in American culture, I mean, is that something they felt about themselves, I think, made Russia, uh, where the working man was supposedly exalted, made it, made it a very appealing place for Lee. And also it was a very dramatic gesture on his part. He was a person who was prone to drama and making big attention-getting acts. Leaving the U.S. at the height of the Cold War and then like popping up in Moscow was, of course, a, a hugely attention-getting thing. The Soviets were happy to have him, although they were themselves suspicious at first, but they offered him a job in a factory after he had tried to kill himself, by the way. I mean, he began to become accustomed to his new life there. And in fact, it was much more than that. He really seems to have turned into a different person once he, once he was thousands and thousands of miles away from his mother. I think he was 20 at the time of his defection. And he actually started acting like a college student. He was partying and dating. And this was not like a guy who was hugely popular with girls in junior high and high school, but he was really having a good time in Russia, according to a guy he had befriended there and used to hang out with. He met the woman who became his wife, Marina, a beautiful Russian woman, and decided to come back to the U.S., I believe, because he was very disappointed. Having worked at a factory in Minsk for a number of months, he came to see that workers were not treated well there either. I mean, they had a very strict regimen that they lived under. They could only go here and there at certain times, and they had to get permission to do everything. I think he just felt very disaffected there and, and returned. But he did have Marina, and when they got back to the U.S., he was expecting another big dramatic moment, and it didn't happen. He was expecting to see a lot of reporters when they returned to Fort Worth and met up with one of his older brothers. And I don't even think there were any reporters or maybe just one at the when they got off the plane in Fort Worth. So here, Lee, it's like he was looking for this big return, you know, make, making a, a gigantic entrance on the American stage. And it didn't happen. Things from then on were not that good for him, although he did have a wife, and they did have a baby. They returned with a, a little girl. And later, shortly before Oswald killed JFK, Marina gave birth to their second daughter. You know, when I was reading the book, I thought both Oswald and Marguerite, had they been born about 40 years later, would have been on a reality show. I mean, they're the kind of people who would have said, you know, this is my chance if I go on Dancing with the Stars or, you know, The Voice or something like that. It does sort of speak to this kind of American impulse to stand out, to win the lottery, to become famous without actually ever doing anything to deserve it. So let's talk about 
Oswald's decision to kill JFK. It's, it's not a great plot that he puts together. It's very disorganized. And of course, he gets caught. Why does he decide to do this? I love that you make the reality show uh, reference. He and Marguerite can certainly compare to Honey Boo Boo and her family. And by the way, a number of people who've been involved with reality shows have been involved with a number of crimes, everything from murder to theft to armed robbery. So I think that those shows do attract a number of unstable people and provide them with a way to become acknowledged. And then, of course, that's short-lived and, and something happens. For Oswald and JFK, I mean, Oswald was a serf taking down an American king. He actually admired JFK, unbeknownst to a lot of people. While he was living in Russia, Marguerite was sending him books and photos and letters, asking him to come home and so on. And one of the things she sent him was a copy of Time magazine with JFK on the cover. This was before he became president, but he was obviously a rising star in the Democratic Party at the time. Oswald brought it back with him to Russia, and he and Marina kept it on their coffee table as just something they wanted to display. And Marina would speak of how handsome JFK was. And at one point, she said to Lee that JFK reminded her of a previous boyfriend. And that... that statement did not go well with Oswald. I think it was kind of a natural progression for him that he, a nobody, would end up killing the most consequential figure in America, and if not the planet, in a way, at that time. JFK was everything he was not. He was an aristocrat from the Northeast. He was American royalty. He was not from the South. He was a Yankee. Lee was a rebel without a cause. The fact that JFK ended up within his rifle sights, literally, I believe was kind of happenstance. I mean, it was a lot of forces that converged. Lee had just gotten a job at the Texas Book Depository a couple of days before the assassination. He had bought a rifle, you know, a few months earlier. I can't remember the exact date, but he had tried to assassinate General Edmund Walker, a right-wing general who instigated the riots at the University of Mississippi in which some people were killed, and he, Walker was a nemesis of JFK's. So this, to me, goes to the fact that Oswald had no political affiliations, and he could have succeeded in executing Walker. But he was obviously looking for recognition and looking to make a statement before killing JFK. Then, when he found out after getting the job at the book depository that JFK's motorcade was coming to Dallas, for a visit to Texas where JFK well knew that he had many, many enemies and had even been warned not to, to come there. The Dallas Morning News had run a, a kind of what was essentially an obituary to JFK in a big black box on, I think it was on their front page, and it's called JFK a traitor and and essentially warned him to watch out. And that was that appeared on the morning of the assassination. So there were a lot of things converging there. I mean, he was loathed by Texas oilmen and, you know, wealthy businessmen there. And all, there were just all, all sorts of things swirling around. Oswald seizes his moment. He knows he finds out that JFK's motorcade is passing before him at a certain time in the place where he works. And he goes to the home of a friend and, and um, picks up his rifle that he'd been hiding there, unbeknownst to Ruth Payne, the woman whose house he was in. and 
smuggles it into work that morning, uh, the morning of, of November 22nd. So what happens to Marguerite after Oswald is killed? Well, strangely, Oswald, of course, becomes instantly famous, the thing he had been seeking all along. And Marguerite, too, becomes a figure of note or notoriety. She immediately begins courting reporters. One of the first things she does is she contacts Bob Schieffer. He was at a Dallas newspaper and says, this was before Oswald was killed. She says, I need a ride to the Dallas County Jail. And he says, who is this? And he go, she goes, I'm Marguerite Oswald. I'm the mother of, of Lee Harvey, who's been accused of killing JFK. So sensing that he has the scoop of the century, he picks Marguerite up and drives her to visit Oswald in jail. So from then on, Marguerite has courted a, a a relationship with reporters. She's constantly calling them. They are seeking her out as well. I mean, who doesn't want an interview with the mother of the assassin? She sells access, foreshadowing what's going on today with the Inquirer and other tabloids paying cash for, uh, you know, interviews to people who committed all sorts of subterranean acts and are looking for fame. In a way, Margaret Oswald started, you could might say started a lot of this, um, at least in the mid-20th century. She uh, started selling photos of Lee Harvey Oswald at Dealey Plaza. She was a frequent visitor to the kill site. She was selling Lee's memorabilia, his letters. Certainly, she wasn't the only one. Uh, any number of people over the years have come forward to sell Lee Harvey Oswald fingerprints from the time of his arrest. And a friend of mine, a writer who passed away recently named Tom Miller, attended an auction of Jack Ruby's kitchen sink, literally, meaning everything that Jack Ruby, the killer of Oswald, had possessed. And my friend Tom ended up buying Jack Ruby's can opener for a dollar. <laughs> so, I mean, anything and everything associated with any person around the JFK assassination has been selling things. Uh, Marina Oswald herself sold her wedding ring. I mean, I get that some of these people needed money, but um, the whole thing has become kind of a festival of cash, you know, in a very American way. And Marguerite herself right, wrote a book, which I talk about in my book. She, weirdly enough, while Lee was in Russia, she had been working on a a book about his defection. See, everybody wants to be a writer, right? And when he came back, she told him, hey, guess what? I've been writing a book about what you've been up to. And he, he said, but you can't. I've been writing my own book. <laughs> I mean, it's just too funny. Believe me, I, I'd be the last person to disparage writers and those seeking to publish their stories. But in this case, it's just really funny. So, Deanne, why should our listeners read this book now? Because I think that it opens up a new window of appraisal of the JFK assassination, and we can take a look at how family pathology factors into American violence. And then when you throw guns into the mix, obviously we have a very serious problem, and you have to also consider 
the fact that mental illness was involved. And these are all things that we're not allowed to talk about. I mean, nobody wants to talk about mental illness. They just want to focus on guns. Well, that's fine, but you just can't separate these things out. We have a combo platter of very serious problems here that have all converged and exploded. And here's a postscript, listeners. As we were finishing production, we learned about a new documentary to be released on Paramount+. Plus. Doctors at Parkland Hospital in Dallas claim, 60 years later, that given the placement of the wounds, there must have been a second shooter. Oswald did not act alone. Let the games begin again. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.